Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Philip Landrigan as the second speaker in our fall series of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Dr. Landrigan is the director of the Center for Children's Health and the Environment at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. He has earned a national reputation for his work in establishing links between common environmental toxins and pediatric health issues. Let me give you a little perspective on the significance of this issue. Current research indicates that one of every six children in America suffers from problems such as autism, attention deficit disorder, and dyslexia. A new study from the National Academy of Sciences suggests that a combination of genes and neurotoxicants may account for nearly 25% of these developmental disorders. Mount Sinai recently established the Center for Children's Health and the Environment to examine the possible connections between childhood illnesses and exposure to toxic pollutants. A pioneer in the field, Dr. Landrigan was selected to serve as the director of the center. He is also chair of community and preventative medicine at Mount Sinai. A graduate of the Harvard Medical School, Dr. Landrigan serves as a senior advisor to the Environmental Protection Agency, where he was instrumental in establishing the EPA's Office of Children's Health Protection. He has served on the New York City Mayor's Advisory Committee to Prevent Childhood Lead Paint Poisoning and is currently a member of the President's Advisory Committee on Gulf War Veterans' Illnesses. His book, Raising Children Toxic-Free, is a practical guide on protecting children from lead, radon, pesticides, and other environmental toxins. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Philip Landrigan. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight and it's an honor for me to be here with you today in this wonderful space at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Let me begin by thanking a few folks. I'd like to thank Pat Schoenaker of the St. Paul Neighborhood Energy Consortium, uh, Judy Chavey and the Advocates for Better Health and Environment, Tessa Hill of MinCheck, the Minnesota Coalition for uh, Children's Health uh, and the Environment, and lastly, the Pew Charitable Trusts of Philadelphia who support the work of our Center for Children's Health and the Environment at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. My topic today is the, is the impact of toxins in the environment on the health of children. And I'd like to begin by sketching a perspective for you, uh, a, a perspective that involves the, the joining together of two uh, fields of endeavor that for the last 30 or 40 years have been largely separate. And those two fields are on the one hand pediatrics or medicine in general and public health included in that, and on the other side environmental science and environmental protection. Many years ago, perhaps as long as a hundred years ago in this country, protecting the environment and protecting human health were, were two areas of human endeavor that were closely aligned. Uh, doctors of that age understood, because they made house calls, that 
a lot of the disease that was caused in people had a lot to do with the environment that surrounded them, the home, the community, the neighborhood, and the larger environment. In this century, as the world has become more complex, more fragmented, more specialized, those two areas of endeavor have become separated from each other. Uh, I think they're separated in our daily thought. They're separated in government. We have a Department of Health. We also, in most states and at the federal level, have a Department of Environmental Protection. And in most parts of the country, they're, they're separate departments with their own budgets, their own areas of responsibilities. And they don't very often talk to each other. And it's also true in, in news reporting, that, that newspapers will have a health bureau who report on new medical developments and new treatment. And they'll have an environment bureau who will report on changes in bird species in the Arctic or changes in, in the global temperature, but will very seldom cross-communicate with the people who think about, about human health. So my task today will be to sketch for you the notion that there are interactions between the environment and human health. Uh, I'm going to focus especially on the impact of the environment on children, doing that for several reasons. First, because I'm a pediatrician, so my professional training inclines me to think about children. I'm also a, a father as well as a grandfather, and, and therefore I have a deep abiding and personal interest in the, in the health of children. And, and Finally, I believe that there's a, there's a moral dimension to, to protecting children's health. Children are the most vulnerable among us. Uh, we, the adults, the senior members of the species, have a responsibility to protect those who cannot protect themselves and who also, of course, are our successors. Let me begin by talking about changing patterns of disease among children in this country. 75 or 100 years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, the main diseases among American children, the main killers, were the infectious diseases. Uh, measles, dysentery, pneumonia, tuberculosis, were the, and the flu, the 1918 influenza pandemic. Those were the diseases that swept through American cities and, and took off people in vast numbers. Those are still the diseases today in the year 2000 that account for most death in the developing world. Those diseases plus, of course, the scourge of AIDS are the major killers in Africa, in South America, in Southeast Asia. But in this country and in Western Europe, in Japan, in other industrially developed nations, patterns of disease in children and in the population at large have changed, and they've changed dramatically. And today, among children, the leading cause of death is, is injury, uh, the, the consequences of automobile accidents, violence of all sorts. And the number two killer of children today in this country is cancer. Uh, likewise, the major causes of hospitalization and illness in children in this country are chronic diseases. Asthma has become the leading uh, cause of admission of urban children to hospital. Rates of diabetes have gone up. Rates of certain birth defects have gone up. And I want to, in the next few minutes today, talk about those changing patterns of disease in some detail, and then speculate about the possible contribution of toxic factors in the environment to those changing patterns of disease. So let me start with asthma. Asthma, as I just said, has become the leading cause of admission of urban children to hospital. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control, Rates of asthma among children in this country have more than doubled 
in the last 15 years. I spend one month each year running a pediatric ward at my hospital in New York, and nowadays when I'm on that ward, more than half the children are suffering from asthma. Asthma has always been with us, but the, the rates of the disease have just skyrocketed in recent years. Also, also the death rate is up. There are big differentials in occurrence of asthma by income and by ethnicity. We did a study a couple of years ago in New York City that was published in the Journal of Asthma in the summer of 2000, and we found that the asthma hospitalization rate among children from the poorest neighborhoods in the five boroughs of New York City were 21 times greater than the hospitalization rates among kids in the, in the wealthiest neighborhoods. And there was a similar gradient from white to black to Latino children uh, in our population. So there, there are clearly multiple factors at work here, some biological, some social, and some environmental. Uh, we know that there's a genetic base for asthma. Some children are susceptible to asthma, some are not. And then superimposed upon that genetic base are a whole series of triggers, dust in the home, change in the weather, the common cold, pollen, secondhand cigarette smoke, and air pollution from cars and from industry. And, and our task as people who are concerned, as I, who are concerned about preventive medicine and preventing disease is to, is to deal with the preventable triggers of asthma. We know that we can't change the weather, we can't do much about the pollen, but we can certainly encourage parents not to smoke in the home of a child. We can certainly reduce obvious sources of indoor air pollution, such as poorly vented uh, furnaces and fireplaces. And finally, we need to do a much better job as a society to reduce air pollution in our cities. Far too many of us drive, far too few of us take trains, partly because the trains aren't there, uh, or they're inconvenient, or they're dirty and they don't run at night. Cities need to do a better job of building public transportation, getting cars off the road, making it easy for people to get about without using the infernal combustion engine and without using uh, diesel buses. Uh, these, these are changes that we can make. They're changes that are within our power to make, but clearly it requires a certain level of societal will to bring those changes about. Another disease which is going in the wrong direction among children today, and we don't really know the reason why, is cancer. There are about 8,000 new cases of cancer among children each year in this country. And as I mentioned a moment ago, cancer is the second leading cause of death among American children. The good news on childhood cancer is that the death rate is going down. 30 years ago, when I was an intern in pediatrics, every child, every child with cancer without exception died. The diagnosis was a death sentence. The only question was how long might the child last. Today, more than 70% of children with leukemia, which is the most common form of childhood malignancy, survive the disease, and substantial fractions of children with brain cancer, bone tumors, kidney tumors, and other forms of childhood cancer also live to survive, to play, to grow up, to become members of our society. That, that is an absolutely wonderful triumph, and it's mostly the consequence of great research that's been supported by the American Cancer Society and the National Institutes of Health. But the bad news on childhood cancer is that the incidence, that is the actual number of new cases per thousand children, the rate, is going up. And it's going up most especially for brain cancer. Brain cancer is the second most common form of cancer in children. 
and the incidence for childhood brain cancer has increased by 35% since we started keeping national records in the early 1970s. That's an astounding increase, a 35% increase in a terrible uh, disease that, that kills and damages children. And we simply don't know the reason why. There's work beginning here at the University of Minnesota and in other medical centers around the country uh, to piece this terrible puzzle together. But at the moment, we don't know why the rates are going up. Maybe it's due to environmental factors. Maybe it's due to some other factor. I don't know. But it's a, it's a real increase that we need to address. Another disease, another set of diseases that are very prevalent among children in this country are learning disabilities of various sorts that include dyslexia, uh, attention deficit disorder, autism, mental retardation. These diseases afflict, these conditions afflict a very large number of children in this country. They, depending upon which precise definition you use, 8 or 10 or 12 percent of the four million babies that are born in the United States each year uh, have these conditions. So we're talking about somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 new children each year in this country who have learning disabilities of various sorts. What's the cause of these diseases? Well, we know the causes of some. We know, for example, that lead, which is so prevalent in our society, uh, is a powerful cause of decreased intelligence and alteration in behavior. We've done a very good job in the United States of controlling children's exposure to lead. By the single act of getting lead out of gasoline, which began in 1976, we've reduced blood lead levels among children in the United States by over 90%. This is a real triumph of public health for which the whole, our whole American society should give ourselves a pat on the back. We've made all American children better than average. Uh, we've made every child in America three or four IQ points smarter than the children that came through in 1970 as a consequence of getting lead out of gasoline. But there's still more than a million children with elevated blood lead levels, and we have to bear down now and try to prevent disease in them and in the next generation of children. Polychlorinated biphenyls, a persistent pollutant which has been discharged by industry into waterways around this country, into the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence, the Hudson River, moves up through the food chain and accumulates in fish when pregnant women eat fish, like striped bass, that have been contaminated with PCBs, the PCBs come into their body, they're stored in the mother's tissues. When the mother becomes pregnant, they cross the placenta very easily, they go to the brain of the fetus, and they cause brain damage. And the result is loss of intelligence, alteration of behavior, not unlike lead, and not unlike lead, the effects appear to be permanent. We don't really yet have a good national strategy for dealing with this pollutant except to tell people not to eat fish, which I think is necessary, but really not a sufficient strategy. We become worried about mercury. We become worried about certain pesticides as possibly having the ability to damage the fetal brain. One of the most commonly used pesticides in the urban environment is a chemical called chlorpyrifos. It's used very widely to control cockroaches in cities. Recent data from animals, no, no human data, but recent data from laboratory animals indicate that chlorpyrifos can kill cells in the developing brain of a rat, and if that little ratlet is, around, is allowed to, to grow up, uh, he or she has learning disabilities. They can't run a maze, they can't learn tricks, they can't get a peanut from, uh, from behind a button uh, because of the injury caused by pesticides. And we're putting tons of this very chemical into apartments today 
where children live and play. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was sufficiently convinced by these findings that just earlier this summer, Carol Browner, the administrator, uh, released an order which is going to severely restrict the use of this one pesticide in homes and apartments across the USA. The trouble is there are 600 other pesticides still out there, most of which have not ever been adequately tested uh, to know what might be their toxic effects um, on human children. And lastly, a fourth category of disease that we're worried about are disorders that affect the reproductive organs. In young men in this country, in the age group 15 to 30, the incidence of testicular cancer, cancer of the testis, has increased by 68% in the last 30 years. Uh, among baby boys in this country, the incidence of a birth defect called hypospadias, which is a malformation of the penis, has more than doubled in the last uh, 30 years. Among men in this country, sperm counts are falling and the number of infertile men has increased. We simply don't know the reason for these changes, but these are big changes that are moving all across our society and they are reflected also in certain changes that are occurring in the animal kingdom. Uh, alligators in certain lakes in Florida, Lake Apopka, which is heavily contaminated with pesticides and PCBs, are being born with uh, deformities of the reproductive organs. And more and more birds in the Arctic are being born with what are called ambiguous genitalia. In other words, genitalia that are neither clearly male nor clearly female, but, but somewhere in between. And we don't really know the causes of these of these changes. We think that they might be due to exposure to chemicals in the environment. Partic we're particularly concerned that they're the consequence of exposure to chemicals that have the capacity to disrupt the functioning of the endocrine and the reproductive systems in the body. But we really don't know the reason why, and we certainly don't have a clear exp explanation for these trends. So what are we to do about it? Well, the solutions are within, within our power. Most of these problems that I'm discussing today are problems that ultimately are the consequence of human activity, activity that was in many cases well intended but in retrospect a bit careless. Now, as we move into a new millennium, we have to think about what we've done in the past to the environment. We have to think about the impact of the environment on human health. We have to look for targets of opportunity where we can make a difference and then, and then we have to take action. Let me tell you about some steps that are underway and also sketch some work that we can do in the future. In the summer of 1993, the U.S. Congress took a very, very important action which has fundamentally changed and uplifted the level of federal effort to protect the health of children from toxins in the environment. By unanimous vote of both houses, the 104th Congress passed a piece of legislation called the Food Quality Protection Act. This is, this is the federal pesticide law. It fundamentally changes the way in which pesticides, one of the most pervasive classes of environmental toxins in this country, are to be regulated. In the past, pesticides were regulated by trading health concerns off against economic factors. And too often, far too often, health lost and economics won. Under the new law, that's completely changed. The new law says the pesticide standards in this country have to be based on considerations of health. 
the law specifically directs the regulatory agencies to figure out what are the health effects of these chemicals, to do proper testing, to no longer consider these chemicals innocent until proven guilty, but rather the reverse, and then to, to set standards accordingly. Additionally, the new law says that these health protective standards need specifically to be set at levels that will protect the health of infants and children. We, we can no longer pretend that the whole American population uh, can be represented by an adult white male who happens to look like me. Uh, the new law requires us to consider the fact that the American population includes the very young and the very old. It includes people of different ethnic backgrounds, different exposures and different behaviors. And the new law directs the agencies to consider the vulnerable among us and particularly to consider the children in setting the standards. As a consequence of passage of that law, the federal regulatory apparatus is slowly, sometimes I think too slowly, but still moving in the right direction, beginning to change the way they regulate chemicals. The Environmental Protection Agency has now established an Office of Children's Health Protection. In 1997, President Clinton and Vice President Gore signed an executive order which makes the protection of children's health against environmental toxins and safety hazards one of the overriding priorities of this administration. There is very serious talk, including money, uh, on the table in Washington to establish a massive study, a study of 100,000 American babies over the next 25 years to examine in a very disciplined and rigorous way the impact of environmental and social behavioral factors upon the growth and development of these children. This study is being called the National Longitudinal Study, or in shorthand among the pediatricians, it's being called the Children's Framingham Study. That name derives from a very famous study that was uh, instituted 50 years ago uh, in Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, a town outside Boston, a study that was instituted then by the US Public Health Service to find out why rates of heart disease and stroke were skyrocketing among the GIs who had come back from World War II. And what that study taught us was that obesity, hypertension, cholesterol, cigarette smoking, and all the other factors that we now know uh, are the major risk factors for heart disease. Empowered by that knowledge, physicians and health departments in this country have put campaigns in place which have brought about striking reductions in rates of heart disease among American men, particularly among white men. Now it's time to do the same for our kids. And the National Longitudinal Study plans to enroll 100,000 babies uh, as early as possible after conception when they're still in their mother's womb. Moms will be, and moms and dads and families will be invited to join the study. Samples of blood and urine will be taken on the mothers and analyzed for toxic chemicals. Moms and dad will be asked about risk factors and all of this information will be carefully tabulated. Confidentiality obviously is gonna be an issue that we're gonna to have to watch closely. Then when the babies are born, We'll evaluate them. We'll evaluate them at birth, at six months, at a year, at two years, and again and again, all through their childhood. And we'll seek to answer the question, does the exposure of a child to pesticides, or to lead, or PCBs, or to PCBs in combination with mercury, or lead in combination with malathion, do those prenatal and early life exposures have negative effects upon the health of our children, and upon their development, and upon their intelligence? and upon their ability to function in the year 2040 
as intelligent adult members of our society. We desperately need to know the answers to those questions. Today, there are some 80,000 chemicals registered for use in this country. Fewer than half, 43% to be exact, of these chemicals have ever been tested to determine whether they have the potential to cause toxicity to humans. What we are doing in our society is that we are conducting a vast toxicologic experiment in which we are allowing our children and our grandchildren to be exposed to thousands upon thousands of chemicals whose toxic potential we simply do not know. It is to close this terrible gap in knowledge that we have proposed that the National Longitudinal Study be undertaken. In closing, I'll mention just a few other activities that health departments and the medical profession around the country are taking to begin to, to get on top of this issue. The National Institutes of Health, in partnership with the Environmental Protection Agency, have established eight children's environmental health and disease prevention research centers, which are situated in medical schools around the country. The establishment of these centers represents a vast increase in the level of resource being directed towards understanding uh, the impacts of environmental toxins on children's health. The, the Centers for Disease Control and the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry have established a national network of clinical centers uh, which, which have the mission of evaluating children who have suffered toxic exposures, particularly toxic exposures from, from hazardous waste sites. Uh, the Pew Commission on the Environment has called for establishment of national tracking systems, which would track rates of environmentally induced disease in children. For the most part, we don't know really at fine geographic detail what's going on with patterns of disease in this country, and we desperately need disease tracking, uh, disease tracking programs to get that vital intelligence. And lastly, we need to train the next generation of leaders. Today, in the year 2000, the number of pediatricians and health scientists who are actively engaged in thinking about the impact of environmental toxins on the health of children could probably be fit uh, into a small twin-engine aircraft. There are only, to my knowledge, there is only one training program in the United States which is training the next generation of leaders. We, we are just now actively engaged in conversations with foundations and with the federal government and with the Ambulatory Pediatric Association to get some training programs established. And we've just got tentative word from two foundations. I'm not sure I should reveal their names publicly yet because we don't have it on paper. But two foundations have agreed just within the past couple of weeks to get together and provide a million dollars to the Ambulatory Pediatric Association to establish the beginnings of a national network that will train young pediatricians and move on in the future to train nurses and other health professionals in protecting children against environmental toxins. So we're beginning to move in the right direction, but we have 50 or 75 years of neglect behind us. We, the American citizens, have not been spectacular stewards of the chemical revolution. We've been very clever at developing new chemicals and marketing them and profiting from them, but we've been far less clever or diligent about testing these chemicals, 
about ensuring that we can use them safely. Now it's time to fix that. And I'm confident that if we continue to consider the impact of the environment on the health of children, if we continue to uphold the high ethical premise that it's the duty of the senior members of society to protect the little ones that will get the job done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Landrigan. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Dr. Philip Landrigan, who has just spoken on the topic, A Clear and Present Danger. He has looked at the relationship of toxic chemicals and pollutants on the health of our children. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like to thank again the McKnight and Star Tribune Foundations for their sponsorship of today's forum. Dr. Landrigan, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. This is a question. This is a question from a mom of three kids for whom this is a very serious issue. Every year there are lice outbreaks in my kids' school. We have avoided it so far, but if we aren't so lucky, how do we treat it without putting pesticides on their heads? Good question. Um, some of the chemicals that have been used to treat lice and other insects on children's bodies are profoundly toxic. Uh, one of the chemicals that has been in wide use for years and I believe is still available in most parts of the country is a chemical known as lindane which is marketed most commonly under the brand name of Quell. Uh, lindane which is um, uh, uh, which is basically a, a chlorinated benzene compound, is a probable human carcinogen, a possible endocrine disruptor. And I understand that the state of California has just, within the last few weeks, banned the sale of lindane-containing pesticides on children. The, the chemicals that have come along in the last few years to replace lindane are a class of chemicals called the pyrethroids, uh, you'll find that word in extremely fine print on the label of these products. They're marketed under a wide variety of brand names. Uh, these compounds are suspected, I wouldn't go so far as to say proven, but certainly suspected of having the capacity to disrupt uh, the endocrine system uh, in children. Lice, of course, are a problem. Nobody wants their children to have lice. Insects are vectors of disease. They need to be controlled. but. I don't think that the solution to the problem is to put toxic chemicals on children. The solution to the problem is, first of all, to do commonsensical things in the school environment so that the environment of the school or the nursery or the daycare center will not harbor uh, these bugs. Uh, one solution is to get rid of wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. Wall-to-wall -wall carpeting is, is safe haven for many small crawling creatures and it's also a fertile uh, hiding place for the dusts and the molds that often trigger attacks of asthma in children. Uh, if, uh, if the facility is dealing with young children and there are mattresses where the children take a nap, those mattresses and the blankets and the pillows have to be kept scrupulously clean to keep insects from infesting them. And then finally, children have to be kept 
clean in their homes by their parents uh, using soap and water and, uh, and the other remedies that parents used before the chemical pesticides came along 40 or 50 years ago. Does routine lawn pesticide application really pose any threat to kids? I worry a lot about the routine weekly, bi-weekly, monthly application of pesticides to the lawn. And I worry about that on, on several grounds. I, first of all, I worry about the people that, that apply the chemical. A lot of them are fairly young folks, high school kids, college kids, young people working, who've had fairly minimal training despite the fact that they're dealing with some fairly toxic chemicals and who often don't have very much in the way of protective gear. And so these young applicators are, are being heavily exposed and some of them are young parents or prospective parents themselves. Some of them may not only be exposed at work but also have the potential to carry uh, wet pesticide soiled clothing home with them where if they have little kids those, those contaminated clothing can, um, can pollute the home environment. And, and then I worry about the, the birds and the worms and the little bugs that live on my lawn that don't live on the lawn of my neighbor who, who has this pristine green carpet but devoid of life except grass. And, and, then, and then I worry about the children. I worry about the fact that uh, kids are often on these lawns minutes or hours after they're sprayed. I, I know that little signs are put up that say that they should wait 24 or 48 hours before they before they go on the space, but kids don't read and kids are kids and they get out there and they play and they get the pesticides on them. And these pesticides can be absorbed, some of them through the skin. They can certainly be inhaled and swallowed by children and they can't possibly be good for kids. Uh, we have case reports of pesticide poisoning in young children from lawn spraying. Uh, we had one that was reported from Long Island a few years ago of a six-month-old baby who was, on a who was in a bassinet on the front porch of their house. The mom put the baby out there about 30 minutes after the, uh, the, uh, the lawn truck had departed. And about four hours later, after having napped in the, ba in the bassinet for those four hours, the baby developed acute pesticide poisoning with convulsions and had to be taken to the local emergency room. The, the child did recover, but, but clearly the episode points out the potential for hazard. Um, in a sense, this issue of lawn pesticides illustrates the question of whether, or whether we as a society ought to presume these chemicals innocent until proven guilty, or should we presume them guilty until proven innocent. Up until now, as I said in my talk, the traditional approach has been to think of these chemicals as being benign, as being beneficial, as being helpful, until we have strong, strong evidence of their toxicity. And consequently, we've allowed this industry to develop. We allow hundreds of thousands of pounds of pesticides to be put on lawns. And we're not really collecting data on what's being applied, who's being exposed, or what toxic effects are resulting. Only two states in this nation, California and New York to my knowledge, even have registries which record how much pesticide is applied. In New York State, we got such legislation three years ago, and it's been enormously helpful. Uh, we now can pinpoint who's using pesticides where, and that information is power. That information has enabled us to persuade local government to stop routinely applying pesticides on public properties. 
it's led to the formation of pesticide control boards in many of our counties in New York State who scrupulously review the use of pesticides. Cutting down pesticides has saved our county's money. These chemicals are not cheap, and there are often good, safer alternatives that can be used to the chemical pesticides. So I think the, the issue of applying pesticides to lawns is an important one, and, and it opens up consideration of a, of a wide range of issues. Thanks for that question. Someone does ask, should we give up on the perfect lawn? I think the answer is yes, <laughs> which is a relief to me, by the way. Depends on your, it, it's appropriate to say this from a pulpit, that it depends upon your nature, your definition of perfection. But I think, I think. Let's move on to a question about uh, homes themselves. Which is generally healthier, a new home or an older home? I wouldn't want to offer a general answer to the question of whether a new home or an older home is, is healthier. Both have their strengths, both have their weaknesses. The greatest worry in an older home, and by older I mean a home that's built before about 1970, is lead paint. Lead paint was used on millions of homes in this country. The Centers for Disease Control estimate today that 47 million dwelling units still have lead paint. That lead paint poses a very serious danger to young children. If young children get lit into their bodies, the result can be loss of intelligence, change in behavior, increased risk of hyperactivity, increased risk of dyslexia, increased risk of failing to graduate from high school. Lead paint's a very serious issue. And also, parents that move into an older home have to be very careful themselves about the lead paint, uh, because somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of lead poisoning cases around the country are associated with home renovation, do-it-yourself work. Um, so lead is a problem in older homes. Some older homes have asbestos insulation, which needs to be dealt with very carefully. have to get a professional in to deal with that. Newer homes um, have the problem that if they're brand new, they often have a lot of synthetic materials, pressed furniture, wall-to-wall -wall carpet installed, and those pressed materials for the first few years, or at least months, will release formaldehyde and other toxic gases into the air, which can be, which can be toxic to children. I would advise anybody moving into a new home not to get wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. It's time to go back to bare floors and scatter rugs. Um, and lastly, I think that Anybody buying a home, like anybody making any other big investment um, in our society, needs to, needs to look the home over carefully, get a professional in, check it for paint, for asbestos, for radon, for past use of pesticides, for safety hazards, and then enjoy the house. Now a question about foods. Should we be concerned about genetically altered foods? hard for me to answer that question specifically because, to my knowledge, there is no data, there are no data that genetically altered foods can cause disease in humans. But having said that, I think that there's room here to call for prudence. We humans, and perhaps in particular we Americans, have, have a lot of hubris. We, we have a lot of faith in technology. We have a profound belief in our ability to master technology. And that's a belief that in the past century has got us into trouble. Uh, in the 1930s, we hailed DDT as a blessing and applied tons of it around the country. It was only later that, that we, only 30 years later that Rachel Carson realized that the DDT 
was about to make the bald eagle extinct, which got the attention of people in Washington, and we banned it. Uh, we introduced PCBs in the 1940s, and it wasn't until the mid-1970s that we realized the PCBs were seriously contaminating uh, marine fish. In the 1920s and 30s, we introduced tetraethyl lead to gasoline. Uh, we, as a society, we loved it. It kept our engines from knocking. And by the mid-1970s, we were using 200,000 tons of tetraethyl lead a year in the blissful belief that emitting 200,000 tons to the, uh, to the atmosphere and to the environment carried no price. And it was only when the Public Health Service began conducting careful studies in the 1970s that we realized that we had succeeded in poisoning a whole generation of American children with lead. Right now, some of the gasoline manufacturers are proposing to replace tetraethyl lead with a fuel additive called MPTP, which is a, uh, a compound based on manganese. Well, manganese is a compound which is well known in industrial workers to cause a disease very like Parkinson's disease. It, it enters the brain, causes injury to the basal ganglia, uh, and causes symptoms of tremor similar to Parkinson's disease, and yet certain of the manufacturers would like to introduce this compound widely to American society. They're assuring us that we shouldn't worry. And in fact, they've already succeeded in introducing it in parts of Canada. So I think it's in, it's in that context of our past experiences with hubris and our realization only 25, 30, 40, 50 years later that our actions have consequences. It's in that context that we, I believe we need to think about genetically altered food. I don't know what are going to be the risks of genetically altered food. I don't think anybody really knows, but I think, I think caution and precaution is very much in order. I think we should proceed carefully. I think that there need to be reviews at every step. Now a question about the water in our homes. Uh, what is being done to mandate water filtration in homes? Is water filtration important? I've heard that California is possibly going to mandate the use of all natural house cleaning products. Is this true? Actually, that's another question. Let's focus on the water filtration. Water filtration in our homes. The most important aspect of drinking water is its source. If you've got a good, clean source of water, and then you transport the water safely from the source to your home, then you'll have good water. We are blessed in New York City with the best drinking water in the nation, and we have it because engineers 100 years ago created vast reservoirs upstate which capture pristine water, and then it's brought to the city in pipes that are almost as large in diameter as the space in which we're sitting, and it comes to people's homes. And about the only worry that we have with our water in New York City today is, is lead. That has to do with the fact that some of the older parts of the city have lead pipes, and many of the apartments have lead solder connecting the copper pipes. And so when water has been sitting overnight in those pipes, our drinking water is a bit acid, it dissolves the lead, and there is lead in the first few gallons of water that people take from their tap in the morning. So the solution to that is not to filter, but rather simply to run the water for a couple of minutes before making up the baby's bottle or before making uh, your morning coffee. The big threat for the future is to protect the watershed. If we allow development to occur in the lands around the waters upstate, then we're going to lose uh, our pristine water. Here in the Midwest, where much of your water derives from surface water sources, that means rivers and lakes, uh, 
one of the big issues, of course, is agricultural runoff, the runoff especially in the spring months of, of pesticides into the water supply. Clearly the best solution to that would be to control its source, but in many cases it's too late for that. The, the proximity of the agriculture to the water source is already long established and not about to be undone. In that circumstance, you may seriously have to consider filtration. The details are going to depend, I think, upon local circumstance. Now a question, uh, we have several questions related to political will and, and these issues. Uh, someone asks if, uh, if it's true that California is mandating through law the use of all natural house cleaning products. Is that true? Uh, could this trend spread across the U.S.? Uh, how will our vote in the upcoming election affect these issues? Is this in the, are these issues on the agendas of the political parties? I don't know that anybody is mandating the use of a particular class of, of house cleaning products. It, Typically in this country, lawmakers have been extremely reluctant, and I think for good, for good constitutionally based reasons, not to regulate what people do in their own homes, except obviously when, those, when the actions that people take in their own homes rise to the level of crime. And so there's, there, there's been, I, I, I'm not aware of any, of any regulation in any state to, to tell people what detergent to use. Or, how to clean their windows. I hope not. We just still need some room for anarchy in our society. But, um, um, but still, it's, it, it would be wise for people to give careful consideration to what products they use to clean. A lot of cleaning products are very toxic. Uh, some can cause acute poisoning in children. Others um, uh, run the risk of, uh, if they're used repeatedly, of causing children to be chronically overexposed and develop skin irritation, asthma, uh, as a result of exposure. So I think, it, I think it's wise for parents and grandparents and others who care for young children to think about the products they use in their home. Don't just automatically reach for the package in the supermarket with the brightest label that promises the most. Read the fine print, stay away from the chemicals whose names you can't pronounce, and, and go with the simple products, the lemons, the vinegars, the stuff that your grandmother used to use. Uh, what about this election? I don't want to stand here um, in a pulpit and, and talk about one party or another. I think that would not be appropriate. Um, but I think it would be appropriate to say that issues are, of environmental protection are something that every American ought to be monitoring as we move now into the final weeks of the election season. You should be asking yourself which national candidates, which local candidates um, are most likely to protect the environment and by protecting the environment to protect the health of our children. Uh, who has a concrete plan versus who has um, ill-considered platitudes? Uh, who seems really committed by virtue of her or his track record to do the right thing? I think those are important and valid questions that we should all be asking ourselves as we scrutinize the candidates' records and prepare to exercise the most important right of democracy. I should note that uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale spoke from this pulpit four days ago and was equally deft in avoiding any uh, partisan word to us. Uh, specifically, the National Longitudinal Study, is that on the agenda of the political parties? Are they aware of that and they, are they taking positions on it? National Longitudinal Study is certainly on the agenda of the Congress. Um, I was just told earlier this week that, the, uh, that in these closing weeks of the current legislative session, uh, as a component of a child health bill that the Congress has just 
now passing, uh, that $18 million have been, uh, uh, have been uh, authorized in each of the next two years, so $36 million total to, to support the planning for the study. That sounds like a lot of money. It obviously is a lot of money. But on the other, stand, on the other hand, if we're going to do a study of 100,000 children, it has to be done right. There has to be very careful concern given to what analyses are done, what laboratories are used, what computer infrastructure is there, what safeguards for confidentiality, who's to do it, who's, who's going to be in charge. And all of that stuff takes time, it takes a lot of staff time and a lot of planning. I think this money that's been allocated will, will make it a reality. I've not heard either party take a stand on, it, on the political hustings, but it was very gratifying when I was in Washington a few weeks ago advocating for the study that there was strong support on both sides of the political aisle. Both Democrats and Republicans thought that it was important to undertake such a study. Uh, senior people uh, in both parties, uh, Senator Kennedy on the Democratic side, Senator Frist on the Republican on, in the Senate Health Committee, uh, offered strong bipartisan support. And in the House, uh, Congressman John Porter, Republican, Congressman Nancy Pelosi, Democrat on the Appropriations Committee, offered strong bipartisan support. So I think that the study is a reality. I think it probably is going to happen, and it's something that we just need to continue to support. We have just about run out of time, so I'll ask one very simple, brief question. Please spell the name of the cockroach insecticide that you mentioned. The cockroach insecticide that has just recently been severely restricted by the EPA is called chlorpyrifos, spelled C-H-L-O-R, P-Y-R-I-F-O-S. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lambert.